Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 19, Driven Out, East of Eden. And in this episode, I want to finish a look at Genesis chapter 3, giving particular attention to not only God's response, but ultimately how His mercy and His goodness is what actually drives His judgment and the discipline that He has to extend to the first man and the first woman as a result of their sin. And so we're going to walk through a little bit of what he says about the creation, what he says to the woman, what he then also says to the man, and then his actions about what he has to do with both of them in removing them from a good garden where he dwells with them in perfect harmony and relationship now that that is lost. And so we're going to tackle quite a few topics, but it's going to give us insight into many of the other themes that will continue to surface throughout the Bible. So let's jump right in. I think the best way to begin this episode is simply for me to read the remainder of chapter 3 in Genesis all the way to the end so that we've got a working framework for some of the observations that I'd like to make about what happens here when the Lord God chooses to respond to uh, to the first man and the first woman. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 13 of Genesis 3. And as always, if you have a Bible and want to follow along, that would be great. Otherwise, I've got mine open and plan to read the necessary portions for you to listen in. So here's what it says in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, in terms of what is going on here, I think a quick summary would be really, really helpful When you look at what the Lord God says to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man, the way he describes the curse, if you will, the punishment 
the judgment for them having broken his commandment and have having chosen to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What you find, if you look at this in broad sweeping strokes, is that these judgments, this, this curse, in effect, is simply the undoing or the reversing of the creational blessing. And here's what I mean. When the Lord God gave the creation in the beginning, the things that he spoke into existence were good, and he gave a structure and he gave an order. And he put man in charge of his creation. He created a helper suitable for him. He said, as long as you take your cues from me, you can and will rule this world effectively for its flourishing and for your own flourishing. And that was all considered good. And the Lord God had established that pattern in the garden, in the creation to, to function in a particular way. But as we saw when, when the first man and the first woman decided that it would be good for them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when the Lord God said it would not be good for you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that moment, they chose to step out from under the creational and relational aspects of the world that exists the way God made them. And therefore, without realizing it, they also stepped out from under the world functioning precisely the way the Lord God made it to function. And so what happens is when you say it is good for Adam to receive counsel and directives from Eve, not from the Lord God, then you have placed yourself under her, having her be your authority and to take your cues from her instead of from God means to decide another person should really be in God's place, not God. And the moment you do that, you create a whole new system of dysfunctional relationships between people. And the way that, that the Lord God explains these types of, of curses, if you will, is in direct relationship to the blessings that these things were supposed to be in the garden. And so to the man, he says, the ground will no longer yield its fruit. It will produce thorns and thistles instead. It's going to produce things that are going to make your work, your working and keeping of the ground, it's going to make that harder the ground now is not going to be under you and at your disposal. It is going to fight against you. You're constantly going to be struggling to bring about the very things that you know you should bring about, you know you want to bring about, but you are going to find opposition all along the way. And now for the woman, producing offspring will now be painful and it's going to be filled with grief and with difficulty. We remember in chapter one, the Lord God said to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, that would have been a generally pleasurable experience in its entirety, except for now, that same creational mandate comes with pain. It comes with heartache. Parents stay awake worrying about their children. Children do not follow in the ways of their parents and it brings heartache and pain to them. The giving of birth, which is a joyous occasion in the life of any family, does not happen without first tremendous amount of discomfort and pain and, um, and so on. And so you see, even for Adam now, he no longer views Eve as his helper, but rather as his servant. And when the Lord God is giving to 
Eve, what, what, is, what is coming to her, it says that he will multiply her pain and childbearing. Her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Now, she will seek to dominate Adam and Adam will, in response, seek to dominate her. Uh, nowhere in the creational account were we given the idea that men were to rule over other men. That, that's, that's something that we will see later on as the biblical story unfolds. But initially, Adam and Eve were to rule together as co-rulers. But now that Adam has listened to the voice of his wife, and this does not mean that women should not be able to instruct men or wives should have no say in life over against a man. That's not what is happening here. The idea that Adam is listening to the voice of his wife is over against listening to the voice of God. And in the story, as it is told to us in Genesis, there is only one other voice for Adam to listen to besides God. And that's his wife. And of course, she only had one other voice to listen to, and that was the serpent. And she listened. And therefore, this ordering and structuring of creational blessing has been reversed. It's been undone. And it is not working the way it should. Now again, you notice that the Lord God doesn't decide at this point that he's simply going to start over. He doesn't scrap the whole plan and move on. Instead, right in the middle, believe it or not, of the curse of the serpent, he offers what is quite possibly one of the best promises ever to be given to us in, um, in the Bible. And here's what he says. It says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so he promises to resolve the problems that have now entered into the world through the seed of the woman. Now the seed, the offspring, some one, some child, some descendant in some form from the woman is going to deal with the offspring or the descendant or the seed of the serpent. And so right here, the Bible opens up something for us that we will be able to trace repeatedly throughout scripture and if you've listened to any other podcasts of mine in terms of themes that are presented and how Jesus fulfills certain themes, this promise here in the very same verse is dealing with a seed in both a, in some sense, literal interpretation of seed as well as metaphorical use of seed. And when John the Baptist speaks to the Jews who come out to be baptized by him in Luke chapter 3, he refers to all of them as a brood of vipers. He refers to them as individuals who are children of snakes. That's all brood of vipers actually means. And what he's saying is any individual who finds as his desire for living the cues that he ought to be able to decide good and evil for himself and therefore rule his own life. And if you give him an inch, he will be willing to rule the lives of other people um, very, very contentedly, actually, himself. They are following in the pattern of the deception that the serpent introduced to the woman and in a very real sense have become and are constantly becoming his offspring, those who follow after him, those who resemble him in the way that they live. 
And so what, what God is promising the serpent in forms of a curse is actually a great moment of hope and blessing for us. And that is that a descendant of the woman will one day come and he will deal with this serpent. He will deal with the descendant or descendants of the serpent. And what he says to him is, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we have this, in a sense, a, a wounded victor in some sense. We have the serpent's seed, the serpent's descendant, in some sense, causing a bruise, causing a wound to the heel, to the foot of this victor who is going to be the seed of a woman. And yet at the exact same time, the seed of this woman will bruise the serpent's head. Obviously, a wound and a strike and a blow to the head is far worse than a, than a wound or a strike or a blow to the heel. So what this is actually portraying is some way a, a wounded victor, I think is the best way I've ever heard it put, in some way through wounding, through weakness, through a brokenness, through an infirmity of some kind, the Lord God is going to bring about victory through the weakness, through the brokenness, and he will receive a blow, but it will not be fatal in the sense that it will end the victory being brought about by the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman will, in fact, put a true end to the work of the serpent. And this is tremendously hopeful. It's tremendously liberating. And it is given as a result of a curse. This is spoken to the serpent that one day what he has put into motion will no longer be. And that's hopeful for every one of us, especially as we think about how our lives are drastically affected by the decisions that Adam and Eve made and by the decisions that each and every one of us continues to make each and every day. In verse 21, we are told that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so while they are still in the garden, the Lord cares for the first man and the woman, inviting them to come out of hiding so that he can clothe them in garments that he himself provides for them. You see, we read in verse 7 that they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so the first man and the first woman took it upon themselves to grasp whatever they could find at the time and make, made themselves coverings, made themselves garments. And the same way we talked about how many different ways we choose to hide our own shame and cover it up, we've been doing it and will continue to do it all the time. But tucked right in here in verse 21 is this subtle suggestion that the Lord God himself offers a covering, offers clothing, offers a way to be clothed and to be covered that is better than something that we can do for ourselves. And it specifically tells us that he does so in garments of skins. And so this is the first time that we really see something in, in, the, in Scripture referring to most likely some type of a sacrifice. Here you have the Lord God himself doing something to provide skins for the first man and the first woman 
in order to survive. And we might talk about ancient civilizations and how skins were always the, the clothing of choice, and we could do that. But instead of diving in that direction, what I really want to suggest is that man and woman are always looking to cover themselves. And what the, verse 21 is pointing out to us, it's the very first time it's ever suggested that what we ultimately are going to need is covering that, that the Lord God himself provides. And it's such a beautiful picture, I think, of ultimately the way in which this wounded victor is going to bring about his victory. And so here is the Lord God treating the first man and the first woman with absolute care, absolute compassion, giving them exactly what they need, despite the fact that they have betrayed him and one another and the perfect creation that he um, tasked them to rule. And so the final few verses simply say this, and I'll reread them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The final point that I wanted to draw your attention to in this passage is that the first man and the first woman can no longer remain in God's presence. Their relationship of trust with him has been absolutely broken. They've chosen to place themselves above every other need and of every other responsibility that was theirs in a perfect world in a good garden. And so what, what the Lord God does actually gets us much closer to his heart than how he is typically viewed throughout the Old Testament. I mentioned a handful of episodes ago, I can't even remember which one, but in response to my friend's question, why is the God of the Old Testament so mean and Jesus so nice? When I'm asked that question, and as I was a number of months ago, I come back to this passage, the passage that I just read for you. And I analyze the Lord's actions here in terms of what I know of Jesus's character. Again, as I shared with you in the very first episode, as, as an introduction even to this entire podcast, this podcast is an invitation to reread the Old Testament with Jesus in mind, to unbind it from the many ways it's been misread and misapplied. And what I mean ultimately by that is simply that when you look at Jesus's character and you look at his compassion and you look at his love, if he's saying that he is the revelation of the Father to us, if he can say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and if we can read in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, then what that communicates is that who God is all through the Old Testament has not changed changed and is ultimately revealed to be the person of Jesus. Now I say all of that to say this, what is the Lord God doing in terms of compassion when it comes to his judgment, lest we view God like my friend as simply mean in the Old Testament and nice in the new? Well, I come right back to this particular passage where it says he does not wish 
for the first man and the first woman to take of the tree of life and live forever in their now fallen state. If you think about this for just a minute, what he is implying is that now that they know good and evil and have become like God, there is a position at which they are going to be able to do just about whatever they wish. They were offered the chance to eat of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose in their godlike state, don't forget they were made in his image, So already in chapter 1, when man and woman were created, they were already like God. But here, they have become like God in that they think it's their prerogative and their freedom and their right to define good and evil however they see fit. Well, if that's the case, and their very choices don't lead to more freedom but actually lead to bondage, then for the Lord God to allow them to remain perpetually in that state forever would not be kind or compassionate or loving at all. In fact, it would be quite the opposite. And because the Lord God knows the heart of man better than man does himself, he knows that there could be permanent damage done for the first man and the first woman and therefore all of humanity to remain forever in a position where things are not functioning the way they should and their outlook on life is backwards and they are now turned in on themselves which will cause nothing to flourish, not even their own lives. And so you cannot look at this section where he decides to send them out of the garden and not see it primarily as, hey, I told you not to eat from that tree. And now you've eaten from that tree. You're gone. But rather for a compassionate, caring, ruling God to look at his creatures and say, if I let them continue to run free, they will ultimately destroy themselves and my world. And I can't allow them to think that remaining in my presence is a totally acceptable thing when they've treated it the way that they have. Parents do this to their kids all the time. They don't mean ill will toward their children when they discipline them or remove them from their presence for a time. They do it to remind the children, to teach the children, this is not the way things were supposed to be. And I can't simply turn a blind eye and allow you to think that life is just fine going on like this. And so this idea of the Lord God driving them out, he sends them out, he drives them out toward the east. It's, it's, it's a phrase actually, driven out. These are the same words used to describe God's removing of wicked people in the land of Canaan to make room for his own people. He drives them out. His own people enter Canaan and a number of hundreds of years later, they find themselves just as sinful, just as wicked, just as desperately lost as the nations before them. And the prophets and many of the other biblical writers use these same terms, driven out, to talk about Israel's own exile from their own land. And then in John chapter 2, Jesus, with a whip of cords, drives out the money changers in the temple, those who think that they can dwell freely in the place that God has chosen to put his name, and yet their actions portray quite the opposite of the people who can dwell comfortably in the presence of God. And so this idea of being driven out, driving out its judgment... But in response to the Lord God's promise that in the day they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. You find now at the end of chapter 3 that Adam and Eve are not dead, 
but they are driven away from the presence of the Lord. They're driven away from the one who is and who brings life. So to be driven away from the presence of the Lord, the Lord who is life, is to be driven into death. This is the picture. Driving out and death are very much the same thing. Driven away from the garden into the wilderness. Israel felt like their exile out of Israel into Babylon was certain death. It felt like death, and it is spoken about as death. And so wilderness throughout the Bible is always a reference to a place of fallenness, lostness, sin, and wandering. We'll look at this in Genesis 4. Cain will use these exact words to describe the hopeless state he finds himself in as he's driven away from the Lord. So then gardens and places of shade and rivers of water are always references to places of rest, salvation, community, and restoration. And then the Lord God establishes a cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden. Interestingly enough, in Genesis 2, we are told that man's responsibility was to work the ground and to keep it. And we find out that by allowing a serpent into the garden to wreak havoc in God's good world was a failure of the first man and the first woman to keep or to guard or to protect the garden. And so that responsibility is handed over to an angel. Cherubim now guard the entrance to the garden. And whenever you see a messenger of the Lord coming to people throughout Scripture, it is always in some way an invitation back into a garden fellowship with God himself. It's a call for those people to whom the messengers of the Lord come to open themselves up to some sort of divine intervention on their behalf in order to restore them or in order to restore the world back to what was once there but has since been lost. And so these are the themes that we pick up in Adam and Eve are sent out east of Eden. And to the east is always a direction away from God. And therefore, in the Bible, when we listen to references of individuals traveling west or looking toward the west, it's coming back toward a point of salvation. Because to go away from the Lord to the east is to a place of lostness, barrenness, wilderness, desert, in a wasteland, and a garden is a safe haven, a place of rest, a place where springs of water flow, where there is shade. And this is how and why, toward the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 7, we read this, speaking about those um, who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation seven fifteen to 17 says this, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When you listen to a passage like that and you hear the lamb bringing them 
In the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of living water. You can think the lamb, the lion lamb of Revelation 5 is in fact the wounded victor, the one who will bring restoration and garden-like qualities of life back to a wayward, thirsty, wandering people. And that's the hope of the gospel. That's the biblical story. That's the hope that you and I have every day as we watch this story unfold, see ourselves reflected in its pages, and then long for a Savior who will redeem us from ourselves and restore back to us the way life was always meant to be. And so that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Again, I'm so thankful that you are listening in. Please continue to feel free to send me your comments or your questions or your concerns at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. For those that are still supporting this podcast on a monthly basis, I really want to thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. And if there are others of you who would like to support this podcast on a monthly basis, you can follow the link in the show notes that will take you to a page on Anchor that will show you how to do just that. So again, it's great to have you all listening in, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Have a great week.